0: What is the, what do you want
1: me to say? You have found
2: Chameleon, season three, Wild Boys.
0: A production of Campside Media. Oh. (laughs) A heads up, this show contains discussions of an eating disorder. If you or someone you know is struggling with eating disorders, please listen with care.
2: Before Rowan got on the plane to leave Canada, back in the Vernon Hospital as he came to realize what was waiting for him in the U.S.
3: how well, they were going to take him to America and do these things to him. Um, he put on a black outfit and said, Mom, should I escape? <laughs> should I run out of here and jump my pants? And I'm like, no, let's just go with this and hope it doesn't turn out too
1: bad.
2: So with his fingers crossed, Roan is taken by jet from the Okanagan to his native California, where a police escort ushers him through the doors of the hospital. And he's checked in
1: and it turns out when i get there yeah they're much worse than the canadian people
2: despite having been properly diagnosed in canada and thus properly treated and despite the remarkable turnaround he'd made with his weight and health in the past month back in the u.s it seemed like the memo about all of this was lost in the handoff the american doctors did what they'd done before he ran and treated him as an anorexic, not orthorexic.
1: They're bringing me plate after plate of very unhealthy food, greasy, disgusting food that I don't want to eat.
2: Roan would ask, like, do you guys have any whole foods, an avocado, a health bar? And they'd say, no, but what we can offer you is this standard issue hospital cuisine.
1: Expecting me to eat it, and I'm like, what, I'm not gonna eat this. They were basically stopping me from gaining weight.
2: And Rowan is almost completely alone in this fight. After weeks of having his brother swing by with health food, and then having his mom by his side day and night in the Canadian hospital, the American hospital won't let Diana visit for the first 48 hours. And then when she finally is allowed in.
3: You're like, okay, we have this lunch, visiting hours. You know, you've got from 12 to one to be with him and that's it, you leave.
2: She had one hour a day with Rowan to try and help him by bringing him healthy food he wanted. but. There was a caveat. But I
1: could only eat it for the time they were there, and I had to eat it right in front of them. I'd have
3: an hour to try to cram
1: as much of this in as it could. So I'd just stuff my face for an hour. And then they're like, time's up, you gotta go, take the food with you. You know, it's like they forced me to eat it all in an hour period, it's like so stupid.
2: It was confusing and maddening. Rowan was like, look, we've already found a method that works. I'm a Canadian success story.
1: You know, it's like, that doesn't make sense. Let me be a a person and then choose my diet again, as long as it's a weight-gaining type of diet. Like, I was actually gaining weight in the Canadian hospital. I gained 30
2: pounds. But the staff wouldn't budge. So Diana had to try other means to try and get some calories into Rowan.
3: I would try to like hide an energy bar under his mattress or something so he could have a chance to get these calories. And they'd, they'd go check the room after we left. Oh, I found this energy oh, bar. You were hiding in it. Take it with you.
2: While the food and visitation rules were infuriating, there was one silver lining in this hospital. People that Roan connected with.
1: It was cool like getting to talk to the anorexics in there and the, the cutters and the all the t- mental disorders what, what was cool about it i just like talking to people with mental disorders i relate i'm like yeah and relate on some level
2: while rowan was doing his best on the inside roger and diana were in their own fight with the system on the outside
3: meanwhile through all of this there were court visits where the, where the um, Child Protective Service was trying to see if they would succeed at getting custody or not.
2: They finally had their son back and they were afraid they were gonna lose him all over again.
3: I, I think I noticed for the first time in my life what is it like to experience um, stress at a physical level.
2: One day in the middle of all this, Diana started feeling a strange sensation.
3: I felt my body on fire and red needles pricking me all over.
2: She started having a panic attack. Not knowing what else to do, she dialed 911.
3: They said, 911, what's your emergency? And I'm like, well, they're gonna harm my child. They're gonna put him in a mental hospital and feed him. Um, wait, 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 who, who do you want me to tell? direct this emergency to? The, the doctors, the police, or the fire department? And I'm like, I don't know. The doctors are doing this.
2: It was all the worst kind of vindication. Everything that Rowan feared about this hospital, to the point that he fled the country, it all felt like it was turning out exactly how he thought it would. Instead of trying to help him, to Rowan, it seemed like they were trying to break him. When Roger and Diana get their moment before a judge, they tell him how the Canadian hospital had worked with Rowan and he'd gained a bunch of weight. But this hospital wouldn't work with them. They weren't taking into consideration his true diagnosis, so they were giving him the wrong treatment, restricting what he could eat and how long he could eat it for.
3: And the the judge is hearing about some of this stuff, and he's like, okay.
1: My parents got a court order to have me removed from that hospital. Wow. Because the hospital is actually interfering with my weight gain.
2: So finally, the better part of a year after he slipped out the kitchen sliding door... Rowan returned home, thus ending this bizarre chapter of their lives. With one postscript. The one unresolved thing for the town of Vernon was the boys' utter lack of remorse. To this day, that's the main thing that people in Vernon remember about the Bush Boys, that they never said sorry, and they never said thank you. But after Rowan got home, back to his normal life, one day, he wrote Tammy a letter.
1: He wrote me an email thanking me and this was oh man I'm gonna get emotional because you just feel so duped the whole time right so you feel so duped and um all that energy and just kind of a waste for everyone in the community and he actually wrote me an email and something and he thanked me and just told me like something about me saving his life and uh how I was their, kind of like their surrogate mother for, I was just such an instrumental person in his life and he really did kind of acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. So just that was really impactful to me because it was like, you know what, of course I'm gonna forgive you.
2: With Vernon in the rear view, the boys now had the rest of their lives ahead of them. Which takes us to one of the biggest questions I and anyone who's ever heard this story has. Whatever became of those Bush boys? And what they've done with their lives might surprise you. Or maybe if you've come this far on the journey, it might not surprise you at all. I'm Sam Mullins and from Campside Media, this is Chameleon, Wild Boys, our final episode, part nine, eternal life.
0: You're listening to Camellia from Campside Media. You're listening to Camellia from Campside Media.
2: When Rowan returned home, it was, in some sense, to a very different home than the one he left. It was, for the first time in his life, a home without Kyle in it. A decision that was sort of decreed to Kyle. The general feeling was that, okay, let's just... Let's have you not be around rowing because, you know, people,
1: some people don't think that's a good idea right now. So I'm like, okay, fine. You know, I don't want to, what am I like, you know, like, this is fine. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'll take
2: some time away. And I, I went away somewhere. And where was that somewhere that Kyle went? I'll give you a guess. Wait, you won't get it. He came back to Canada and got in first try.
1: I remember hitchhiking from the east coast of Canada
2: to the west coast
1: in 2004.
2: (laughs) Wait a second. That's like the same year that this happened. Yeah, I I think I hitchhiked in the fall of 2004. Which begs the question, what does one have to do to not be allowed into Canada? I was even told by someone in Vernon that he came back through town on his hitchhiking tour. While Kyle was finally on the Canadian adventure he'd always talked about, back at home, Rowan was learning to manage his orthorexia, his weight and health had stabilized, and he was back in high school doing independent study. And he was inches away from graduating when he got a much more appealing offer. Another land of fruit and plenty beckoned.
1: I was about 10 credits away from finishing when some of my friends were going to fly to Hawaii. So I decided to go with them.
2: There was some sort of plan about starting a small raw foodist catering business, but that was quickly scrapped upon arrival. And Rowan's two friends bailed on Hawaii altogether. But Rowan stayed for a familiar reason.
1: And then I went to the big island and lived there for nine months on a fruit farm. And I was so free. You know, I was free to like go all around the island and hitchhike and you know uh, hanging out with people because there's constantly people coming through so you're talking to new people all the time
2: the vibes he describes in hawaii sound very similar to the canadian hostel but this time rowan could actually be himself it felt like he was making up for lost time he hadn't been very social as a teenager. And then there was the whole Canadian thing. So he was experiencing the adolescent elation of first time away from home, first job, first party, all rolled into one.
1: And there's like drum circles at night hmm. and like uh, crazy parties, you know? Right. It was like, a, a, I, I missed the whole party life because I never like went to parties in high school or anything. So like, you know? nine months in Hawaii. It was weird. It was wild.
2: Weird and wild, and as he soon discovered, often nude.
1: There was a nudist element there. That was was weird. That was a shock.
2: There were so many things that made Hawaii feel like the perfect place for Rowan, but this thing really tripped him up. It was a few steps outside his comfort zone, and he had a very Rowan internal wrestle about it.
1: You start to feel weird if you don't accept them, and you you know you feel weird if like oh you're like you're covering yourself like by you not being open to it. It's almost like, in a sense, judging them like like you're better than them or somehow you're more moral or somehow you're more pure.
2: But Rowan decides, well, when in a Hawaiian nudist fruit farm,
1: I end up just adopting their little nudist thing because, in a way, to make them feel more comfortable.
2: Right. You know what I mean? Rowan could have stayed in Hawaii forever. But even as he dropped trow, partied it up, let loose, what Rowan couldn't let loose was his own mind. The mind that reveled not in partying, but in pondering, asking the big questions with Kyle. That mind is still going. Like when he opts in to the nudity. He doesn't just opt in and be like, I guess I'm a naked person now. He opts in and he thinks, what does it mean that I opted in?
1: Wouldn't have been my first choice, but you go into a culture, but we decide ahead of time. We get to decide what culture, this is about separating people based upon their preferences, and then it just all leads to cool philosophical questions, but I don't know.
2: There, under the only in Hawaii canopy of stars at night, surf in his ears, Rowan couldn't stop wondering if this really was the life that he wanted.
1: Though it was very fun, You know, doing all this stuff and living life with the hippies, you know, the hippie life in Hawaii. It felt like a self-indulgent life. Like, this is fun, I could live like this. But then I started to feel guilty. It just started to feel like, what am I accomplishing here
2: for the world? So Rowan put on a pair of bottoms and flew home, where he and Kyle were reunited. And they jumped right back into their trademark, philosophical, deep dive conversations. There they sat at the beginning of their adult lives, puzzling over, what matters to us? Like, what is the ultimate cause? What should we devote our lives to?
1: Like, really deep. Like, myopically focused on something. You know, just like, let's really figure this out. Let's, like, obsess about this.
2: And they do. Once again, the Horn brothers hole up until finally they realize we got it. We figured out the one thing most worthy of committing our lives to.
1: And so we decided that that's eternal life.
2: Eternal life, like living forever. Not in the afterlife in heaven or hell, but here on this planet in these bodies.
1: How are we going to live forever? Let's approach that question very carefully and stack all the odds in our favor.
2: Rowan sounds like he's giving a halftime speech.
1: Even if it's a long shot, like even if it's hard, even if it's considered crazy, like even if it's considered, that's like, that's like ridiculous. Like if it's that important, you just go for it. You just put everything there.
2: But what could they bring to the extreme longevity movement? They weren't scientists or politicians. So what could they do for the cause?
1: I think what I brought to it was a kind of obsession, you know, because it's like, it seemed like the most important thing. And it always felt like not enough people focus on that as their life focus. You know, they have different, different focuses or careers or this or that. I just didn't feel like enough people were focusing on what I thought was the most important goal which right. is to live forever, you know?
2: And Rowan in particular gets this idea. Why not marry my two passions, eternal life and online content? Rowan logs on and sets up his own YouTube channel.
1: It's your friendly neighborhood, eternal life fan, Rowan Horn. I want you to watch my videos and realize how horrible death is. We're told that death is inevitable we're gonna get old and we're gonna die. That's the natural course of life and you cannot escape that fate.
2: Not if Rowan can help it. Hashtag death to dying. Rowan preaches that if you want it enough, eternal life is coming. You just need to stay alive long enough for the scientists to cure and reverse aging.
1: We have to cure aging. I think aging is the biggest barricade that's gonna prevent us from living forever.
2: Roan makes dozens of videos and posts, and then hundreds. And they're about a lot more than just eternal life. His content's point of view swings wildly from atheistic to devoutly Christian. It's both pro Donald Trump and pro Black Lives Matter. I've seen him post anti Muslim sentiments. He's also very concerned about climate change, and he has an obsession with Alanis Morset and the messages of Alanis Morset's music. Honestly, it can be a little dizzying. Upsetting, even, to scroll through his stuff. Rowan's content is all over the map, but it does always come back to the central message of eternal life.
1: I wanna live forever. You, don't you wanna wanna live forever? Let's, let's all live forever.
2: Rowan there with his mom on backup.
1: Don't wanna die, don't wanna die, don't wanna wanna die. wanna die. die.
3: Sing along with us. Yes.
2: His video started racking up hundreds and then thousands of views and subscribers, which leads, improbably, to Rowan joining the staff of a presidential campaign. Rowan on the campaign trail, coming up.
0: Follow the price of paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly, out of the darkness appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position?
2: Vengeance felt good seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous.
0: True Spies, from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media.
2: Rowan was brought on as a volunteer to become the official videographer of the 2016 Transhumanist Party candidate.
0: Then there's the third-party presidential
2: candidate running on a platform to help people live forever. This is not a joke. And it's unlikely you'll ever meet a presidential candidate as strange as Zoltan Istvan. Zoltan Istvan for president 2016. A single-issue candidate meets the single-issue Horn brothers. Rowan boards the campaign vehicle, which I cannot stress enough is a 40-year-old motorhome modified to look like a coffin and is dubbed the Immortality Bus.
1: I'm about to board the Immortality Bus. This is it. This is the moment that I've been waiting for.
2: At a certain point, Kyle joins the bus too and for months they drive all across america with a talking robot riding shotgun spreading the good word at each stop but before he and his volunteers kyle and rowan horn get to the nation's capital they toured alcor this afternoon each person rowan meets along the way rowan asks them his standard icebreaker do you want to live forever in the corners of the frame of a documentary about the campaign There's Rowan, standing with his video camera atop a tripod, watching curiously as he sees Zoltan get a computer chip implanted in his hand in some guy's garage at a biohacking gathering. Or we see Kyle watching curiously as a CEO gives a tour of the stainless steel casks where he hopes to one day be cryogenically frozen. By the end of the campaign, Rowan seems more enthusiastic for the cause than the man running for president. You can see the wind come out of Zoltan's sails, but Rowan's spirit seems unflappable, unchanged.
1: I'm not talking about living 100 years. I'm not talking about living 200 years, 300 years. That's for amateurs. I'm talking about immortality, living forever.
2: But there's a fine line between joyful zeal and anxious zeal especially when the thing fueling the enthusiasm is fear. For Rowan, the fear that drives him is the fear that has tormented him since elementary school, since he lost his spleen.
1: I would fear so much the idea that I could die at any moment. I would have that in the background of my mind too often, like that it would cause me too much stress, like physical stress in my body. Like I wasn't channeling the fear right. And so I just, just living with that and feeling like I could do nothing about that vulnerability. That's the bad type of fear. The the bad type of fear is where you feel like you can't do anything about it. You can't work towards something, you know?
2: Somewhere along the line, his fear of dying morphed into a belief that maybe he didn't have to. And he started making every decision on the basis of does this bring me closer to or further from death? And when you base your life on that, the walls close in on what you allow yourself to do.
1: Safety first should be the thing, because everything, is, everything boils down to safety. Everything boils down to survival.
2: Rowan doesn't get on planes anymore. Too dangerous.
1: If you fly in a plane and that plane goes down, could be the end of your entire existence.
2: Rowan abstains from sex.
1: If you get an STD and die from that, then you've lost everything.
2: No gluten, no alcohol, avoid making enemies. With every decision he makes, with every salad, every smoothie, every time he declines a plane flight, he's laughing in the face of death. He's turned his whole life into one long marshmallow test. No, I don't want a marshmallow now. I want an infinite amount of marshmallows in eternity. Not to sound like Werner Herzog, but Rowan is fighting a fight that he will lose. But he thinks if he just does enough, if he plays the perfect game, he can do what no living thing has ever done. And trying to hold all of that gets heavy sometimes.
1: It's gonna happen. I'm gonna will myself to do it. I'm gonna put all my focus on that. It's gonna happen. You know, like you can have power to will something into
2: Rowan stops talking and he starts to cry. Are you all right? Yeah. What what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Um
1: Um just various uh I guess disappoint disappointments. Yeah.
2: What, what are you disappointed about?
1: Just, um, just trying to help the world. I try to be perfect. You know, when you try to be perfect, you put a lot of uh, your life becomes very serious. You know.
2: Being witness to Rowan seems to provoke this sort of dueling reaction in people. Because you know how this ends for Rowan. You're positive that you do. Death will come for him, as it does all of us. But he's so certain that it won't, that a small part of you that doesn't make sense kind of hopes that he pulls it off. The best description of this feeling Rowan inspires in people was in a New York Times magazine article about the presidential campaign that Rowan volunteered on. The journalist who wrote the piece, Mark O'Connell, set out to profile the candidate, but in the article you feel his attention being pulled in Rowan's direction. He becomes very taken with this unconventional 20-something volunteer. After his time on the bus with Rowan, O'Connell's piece bids farewell to him with this passage. I felt a strange tenderness for him swelling in my chest, an almost fraternal instinct of protection, very much at odds with any properly journalistic imperatives. I agreed with practically nothing that came out of his mouth the entire time we spent together. He was as strange a person as I'd ever met. I found myself hoping that he would not be disillusioned, that he would maintain, as long as he lived, the sense of his own exemption from death. Zoltan's presidential campaign ended in Washington with a whimper. The plan all along was to symbolically post the transhumanist Bill of Rights to the Capitol, with Rowan filming, but the plan was quelled by a single security guard who just wasn't having it. He said, You can't post that here. So everyone kind of shrugged, and just like that, the campaign was over. Rowan and Kyle returned home from the campaign trail, but continued their own eternal life campaign online, and eventually moved back in together in a warehouse in Nevada. Rowan wasn't really working, and Kyle would work various jobs remotely on his computer to make ends meet. Rowan did have one steady job for a bit, he got engaged to a Serbian woman who he met through his YouTube channel. And it felt like, I gotta get a job now, so he got one making salads in a restaurant. But when they broke up, he quit. Roan and Kyle tried starting a business at one point too. After helping their friend Rebecca start her health food business, the boys tried their hand at getting their own health food brand off the ground.
1: Hey everyone, today I'm gonna be telling you guys about the benefits of Chocolate Factor my new supplement.
2: But entrepreneurship was an awkward fit for the horn brothers.
1: Um but it wasn't a great success. I never felt comfortable pushing the supplements like as a salesman because I felt like maybe people might think that I'm doing this for like money and I never felt fully comfortable in the role of like trying to make money from anything I do. Yeah. So I pretty much, I don't even know if I'm sold any, I, I'd have pretty much stopped trying to sell anything.
2: Most recently, Kyle got a job at someone else's supplement business in a different state than Rowan, working for a guy who may or may not have lots of gerbils. All I know is that Rowan refers to it as the gerbil farm. Kyle invited Rowan to join him there.
1: I, I might be living at a gerbil farm in like a month or so, Working with some gerbils and helping them out. 80 gerbils. Gerbil. It's not my first pick, trust me. I didn't choose this life. This,
2: this gerbil life chose me. Even in adulthood, they're recreating a dynamic that's been playing out since they were kids. They have an understanding. No matter what unconventional thing they might be up to, they look out for each other.
0: You're listening to Camelia from Campside Media. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.
2: In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12 gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is cover up, the conspiracy tapes.
0: You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media.
2: The one question I got most when reporting this story that would come up when I'd be packing up my gear and heading out the door was, are the boys okay? I put that question to the woman who has spent the most time with them outside of their family, their best friend, Rebecca Wise. The boys met her, of course, at Whole Foods, where she was working at the time. They helped her start her health food business. And Rowan lived with her and her husband during the pandemic. Which is to say, if anyone knows how they really are, it's Rebecca.
0: Are they okay?
2: Yeah. Like, are they doing I think okay? so.
0: I think they're doing great. And in a way, they're doing better than people who have, like, a huge house and a mortgage to pay for or, like, an extremely stressful job, you know, people who have these huge weights on them, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, they're dead. The definition of great is not what you would think for a normal person, like, oh, you got a job, you got a wife, you got kids, you know, you drive a good car, but you know, in their level of, like, peace that they have, they have peace, they have confidence, they have, like, the, they don't have a lot of stress, you know. They're able to focus attention and energy on the things that they want to focus on on a daily basis. You know, they really um, have so much wealth and abundance. And, like, when you think of wealth as a gauge of, like, health, too. It's like they focus so much on their health, and it's like, in a way, they're like kings.
2: I asked all the horns how much they think about that time in their lives. If before this annoying Canadian guy started obsessively pestering them about it, if this story is something that they'd share a laugh about or bring up at all. And they each gave me some version of...
1: It's, uh, in most ways now, like, it's a distant memory. Thanks for bringing it back up. It just is what it is. I don't, we don't really reminisce about it. Right. Uh, I'm sure it comes up in one form or another. We mentioned from time to time, you know, whenever we see Tom Green, we, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we make the, the reference right there.
2: The horns don't think about it much. I myself went a decade straight without having a single thought about this story. It makes me think what a privilege it is that we get to file the story away like this. Because what if Rowan died? My mom and all the adults in our town who saw the boys but didn't get involved would wear the weight of community-wide failure forever. Kyle would probably be arrested. Corporal Pro Se would wonder for the rest of his life if he could have done more. Tammy may never have recovered and the horns would be without their son and brother. But that's not how this story went. Instead, a community rallied, a hockey mom was brave and kind, a cop did the right thing. A hospital treated a boy with compassion and understanding. Instead, we get to tell the story about how, one time, our town saved a boy. When you grow up in a place where not a lot of things happen, the few things that do feel really important. A story like this will hold a mirror up and show you who you really are, what this place really is. And if you're lucky, you'll see your community's reflection and think, oh, that's who we are. Good. is a production of Campside Media with Sony Music. Wild Boys was reported and written by me, Sam Mullins. It's produced by Abukara Don, and our editor is Karen Duffin. Our senior producer is Ashley-Ann Krigbaum. Sound design and mixing by Hannes Brown and Garrett Tiedemann. Original music by Hannes Brown, Garrett Tiedemann, Epidemic Sound, and Blue Dot Sessions. Our fact checker is Alex Yavlon. Special thanks to our operations team, Doug Slaywin, Aaliyah Papes, and Allison Haney. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scher, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Josh Dean, and Adam Hoff. Special thanks to Rachel Heinrichs and Chris Berube. Wild Boys is dedicated to the memory of Scott Wallace. If you or someone you know is struggling with your relationship with food, please know you're not alone. There are free, confidential helplines with people just waiting to help. In the U.S., you can call or text the National Eating Disorder Association at 1-800-931-2237. That's 1-800-931-2237. In Canada, the National Eating Disorder Information Center hotline is 1-866-633-4220. That's 1-866-633-4220.